So here we are, April the 26th, 2020, lecture discussion number 100, which is amazing. I'm waiting for you to tell me it's better. Okay, that'll work. We will be continuing last week's template, that being heaving heavy, heaving various objects or subjects of the holy platinum model reversing dry erase board um, and all of that in the vain misguided hope that the highly trained religious professionals can somehow tie everything together in a pretty little bow. That hasn't happened yet in 25 years, but uh, today maybe is the day. Uh, as always, lower your expectations. Anyway, the world is careening. I think that is obvious. Alaska is watching oil futures, be, uh, which began trading this past week in negative territory, uh, which is a heretofore unseen development, certainly in my lifetime, and I don't think it's ever occurred before. And now, obviously, with nationwide uh, quarantine restrictions, there's going to come a precipitous decline more like a collapse, actually, in mobility. The buses, the cars, the trains, the aircraft, the cruise ships. I hear you can buy a cruise ship for 20 bucks now. Uh, there are 14, 1,500 people trapped on those cruise ships as crews, and most of them are, are foreign nationals, and they can't get them off. So uh, that would be absolute misery for me. I couldn't imagine it. I know some of you go, woo, a cruise ship. Me, that's just vomiting and motion sickness and food that I can't eat. Anyway, whenever you shut down the buses, the cars, the trains, the aircraft, uh, the, the, the trucks, cruise ships, anything that has fuel generation, you immediately suspend fuel purchasing, um, which naturally cascades uh, into the impact of, uh, of oil production and refinement. That's cause and effect. That's uh, see Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton's valuable here. He always is. Supply and demand, if you prefer, since what I'm talking about is economies or economic conditions. The point is, yay, a point already. This is economic turmoil. And economic turmoil will lead to something. And that's my point, yay, a point. Now, when you recognize what's going to happen when you have economic turmoil, everybody that wants to get rid of the fuel, I watch the absolute dumbest of all politicians talk about how it's great that the fuel prices are collapsing. I saw a headline the other day that says, and this is politics. I shouldn't do politics. It says it alienates people. It says if you like the lockdown, you're going to love the Green New Deal. And that's uh, without fuel, there is no mobility. There is no food production. There is no transportation of goods. You have a complete overwhelming collapse. The engine of economies is oil, whether you like it or not. And if you get rid of oil, you kill people by the hundreds of millions because there's massive famine. But Mike, can't say it. I already said it twice. We have economic turmoil. And what is that going to lead to? And when you add to economic turmoil a pandemic... And the pressing necessity to identify the asymptomatically infected, especially those who are highly contagious but remain unaware. So you have a pandemic that has got asymptomatic individuals that are not aware that they're asymptomatic and they are out and about, even though some are highly contagious. And the cities, therefore, are mobilizing teams of medical professionals, the epidemiologists, and they contract trace the most severe patients back into their back to their infected origin. The plan is then to isolate what they call super spreaders as quickly as possible. And, and of course, that's fine. That's that's good, maybe. But just like economic collapse, I want to know. What's the path? And by maybe, that's what I mean by maybe. I don't mean that the methodologies and the technologies being used today, now aren't for the greater good today, now they are. I believe they are. But tracking people with Chinese manufactured drone surveillance devices call me crazy, and most people do. Uh, but the cynic in me considers the problem uh, to be difficult, and it uh, reminds me of taxes. 
The government never rescinds a tax. We have taxes on the books that date back into the 17, 1800s. And the government likewise does not willingly reduce its power. It must be coerced. Yeah, there's that old adage when you wanted to, if you wish to determine a man's character, the adage is give him power. And the actually goes like this. Nearly all men can withstand adversity to test a man's character. Give him power. You want to find out what your government is like? Give it more power. You want to find out what your politicians are like? Give them more power. Watch how they wield it. Watch what they do. How quickly they crush everything in their sight. It's been going on for the history of man. The principle holds true in, in my most humble, of, humble opinions. Governments evolve towards control and authoritarianism. So we've got pandemic. We have uh, the contact tracing that goes without economic issues with regard to the fuel that provides food for the whole world. Without the fuel, there is no food. It's just simple cause and effect. Again, Isaac Newton is your friend. So with that, now throw in convalescent plasma. That's immunological advancements. That includes vaccine research. Uh, Also realize that they want to, because there is so much, they believe, the currency, the paper currency, the physical currency may lead to, in fact, infection. They want to eliminate physical currency. They've been trying to do that for, my goodness, my entire life. And, of course, is again something that the Apostle John said would happen 1925 years ago. About. So put them all together. Immunological advancement. Vaccines. Which is again uh, some kind of immunity system. But at the same time they're going to, they're going to have identification based on whether or not you've had the vaccine. You're not going to be able to freely move without some kind of identification. A vaccine card, a vaccine system, maybe, oh, I don't know, a mark on your hand. As the very wealthy uh, try to propose the elimination of physical currency. All of these things, and I begin to wonder where all of this is heading. And my answer, of course, is Revelation 13. I need to put these things on the board And I'll try to write them bigger. I'll erase them as we go along, but at least they'll be on the board for a while. Revelation 14, 9 through 11. Revelation 17. Let me get the right verses for you here. Um, And Revelation 18. get it absolutely right so I don't make mistakes because I can't trust my mind anymore. Almost all of that, 9 through 24. So I'm thinking that that's what we're seeing. I know a lot of theologians do not believe that. I I see them all the time. People all over the world saying we're going to get through this. Well, that's true. We will get through it. Uh, What condition you're in when when you get through it is still up for Discussion. You see, we, we know at some point the entire world is condensed into one system. A global one world government and economic structure with unparalleled dominion. And, and that's the theologi- theologically classic question. Who do we, who does the Bible say seeks authority over everything? And who does the Bible say gives autonomy? So those are your choices. Dems your choices, pays your money, right? Obviously, the one that the satanic element is control-based, disguised as freedom. The godly system is is free. The whole system is free. We'll get to that in a minute. That's how it fits in. But governments tend towards authority and control and power. Uh, And uh, so all I'm asking is how does this one world government, this economic structure, this uh, this crushing dominion dominance, uh, 
When does it begin? We've been talking about the end, I'm sorry, the begin of the end of the Gentiles. When is the beginning of the one world system that we know is coming? The path to Revelation 13, 4 through 18. I'm just asking for a friend of a friend. I need to know. Okay, those are the, that's the beginning of the beginning of the lecture. Let's move along a little bit. Immuno, immunological advancement, since I brought that up. That's Luke 17, 26 through 37. Let's put that on the board. That's, in my opinion, immunological advancement. As you know, Christ gave us a couple of things. He said, days of Noah, days of Noah, days of Lot. Brought it up many times, but that is because he said it. And I know at the end of the age of the Gentiles, I will have the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And that, let me put some different verses on because they're pretty significant. I don't have time to read them today. I could, obviously, and it's not a terrible idea, but I'm going to trust you to read them yourselves, especially those of you uh, who have been here quite some time. Genesis 5.5, Genesis 13, 13, Genesis 18.20. Those are verses that I have read before many times. And you will recognize them when you turn to them. Let me go over them quickly. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continuously. Let me repeat it. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. That's Genesis 5. five. That's what he says is the condition of the earth. Remember, Christ says, at the end of the age of the Gentiles, we'll have the days of Noah and the days of Lot. This is Noah. And the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. And because their sin is very grave, the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful before the Lord. There's your your lot. Days of Noah, days of Lot. There you have the days of Noah, the days of Lot. And note the words of God with respect to both, how they are very similar. Now add in Matthew 24, 27 through 44. Which records, this is where Christ discusses his second coming, his return for Israel. I probably should read this. I didn't think I would, but now I'm changing my mind because I have flexibility. What do we call flexibility? That's right, freedom. I get to do what I want sometimes. Yeah, thanks for laughing. 2427. This is important. Um, I'm going to, yeah, so much of it here to read. I'll just, this is the second coming. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For whenever the carcass is, then there the eagles or the vultures will gather together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will return in heaven. He's asking the, answering the three questions. And he's saying this is the answer to when will you return for Israel? Then the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, that's Israel, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the, because they pierced him, right, Zechariah? And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a great sound of trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from, that's Israel, from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. And then he gives a parable of the fig tree. So they, there he is talking about, 
his second coming. However, at Matthew 24, 36, he changes. He says, but concerning. So in your Bibles, type, but concerning. But concerning of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. He's changed the subject now. So he starts out with return. Actually, return stops at 36, but I want you to read all through to 44. It begins with return. And here is the abduction of the bride. He changes subjects. So... You can put in your Bible that delineation. A lot of theologians don't see that. But concerning of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. He shifts. But concerning that day, I keep repeating it, and hour, no one knows, but my Father only. And you should recognize that verse or those words as what? That's right. No one answered, but the record show. And I'm just talking to myself. Pretty much every Sunday, yeah, no, no difference. You recognize immediately that that language is the eighth and ninth step of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. That's what they say at the Hebrew betrothal ceremony when they get to the eighth and the ninth step. So he's saying, but concerning that day, Hebrew betrothal ceremony. Which means he wants you to know the Hebrew betrothal ceremony, and then you will know when the abduc- abduc- abduction. Blah, 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 blah. <sighs> Remember the days when I could have caffeine? Neither do I. Obviously, to repeat the obvious that is obvious, Christ is infinite God. He's never not infinite, omniscient God, and he knows all things. He, he never is not infinite, omniscient God. He knows everything throughout all of time, John twenty seventeen, John nineteen twenty eight. All things means all things, duh. Everything. So he knows the day and the hour. It is disrespectful to say that he doesn't. It's also, what's the other word? Starts with an S-T, ends with a U, a P, and an I-D. So, get that out of your heads. I know it's, it's, it's so popular. It's everywhere. doesn't make it right. In fact, it's obviously wrong. That's why I want you to write in, but concerning. So that you know he changed his subjects. Christ knows the day and the hour, and he chooses to use the eighth and ninth steps of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. So he's shouting at us, Hebrew betrothal ceremony. That's what those words mean. Excuse me. (coughs) Okay, never sit in that chair over there or play that drum set now for what? Ten days? Fourteen days? So to repeat it a bit, he changes the subject at Matthew 24, 36 from his return for the adulterous wife, which is Israel, the king returning for the adult, the husband returning for the adulterous wife. He changes from because he's he's the king and the husband. He changes to the bridegroom coming to abduct his bride because he's also the bridegroom. He is everything simultaneously because he's infinite and he's omniscient. He can keep track of everything. So the bridegroom starts coming at Matthew 24, 36. And that is why he uses the language of the eighth and ninth steps of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony, because that is the ceremony of the bridegroom and the bride. It is not the, it is not the revocation, if you will, or the restoration of the wife and the divorcement bill or bill of divorcement. And all of that to make the point. Yay, another point. Forgot another See, this is my third one. Wow. New world record called Guinness. The point that the abduction of the bride by the bridegroom has a relationship to Noah's days and Lot's days. They are interlocked. 
Remember, Lot's wife is a bridegroom condition. In other words, it is part of the abduction of the bride. That case has been made um, on the Internet somewhere. I don't know where. I never know where they are. Uh, I know that we have, what do we got? Um, we got cliffside.org. Do we have, okay, we have cliffside.org. We have sermon audio. We still have stuff on YouTube, right? Not new stuff, but old stuff. We have Podbean. That's Kurt and, and those guys doing that. And then we have another one for sure. What am I forgetting? Facebook. And iTunes. Okay, so we got more than I know. I get questions about it all the time. Why don't you post more uh, lectures? And the reason we don't is because Dave is lazy. I mean, Dave doesn't want to. I mean, Terry doesn't make him. One of those three is right. If Dave exists. Whoever Dave is. The abduction of the bride by the bridegroom has a relationship to the days of Noah and the days of Lot that are de- de- described incredibly. And that's imp- the language is so important. And so I want to know what the signs of the days of Noah and the signs of the days of Lot are. And by that, I, I'm, I'm, I mean w- that which constitutes what is the definition when God says great wickedness, every thought, see evil continually, very grave sin and exceeding wickedness. He is the one setting the, the, the definitions. He's setting the parameters of that. What we may think is great wickedness, he may not. So what does he mean by those terms? What is the threshold that has to be reached? Because that threshold is coming back at the end of the age of the Gentiles. And as you know, I submit that these things, great wickedness, every thought evil continually, very grave sin, exceeding wickedness, I submit that they center around Genesis 121, 124, and 125. So let me get rid of this. This, that evil, in my opinion, begins at Genesis 124. No, 121, right? Is it, am I right about that? Let me find it. Gotta go back a page. Yeah, 121, 124. And 125. Now, what are those? Those are where God says, each according to its kind. Each according to its kind. God made the sea creatures according to its kind. The winged birds according to its kind. The beast according to its kind. The cattle and everything that creeps on on the earth according to its kind. And it's very good. It's good. Eventually everything is very good. And I propose that the corruption of this, according of its kind, the manipulation of this established truth that's good, is part of every thought evil continually. So I naturally wait to see if this is occurring in the days of Noah, Matthew twenty four thirty eight and Luke seventeen twenty six. This is every thought evil continually destroying according to its kind. Now we've had theological and and supposed scientific processes uh, uh, trumpeted. I hate to use trumpeted with evolutionary philosophy. But evolutionary philosophy, of course, is monistic. It's physicalism. It is hopelessness. That when you die, you have no existence in the first place. And so you are extinguished forever and you don't even know you're dead. I, I, the Bible says you do know you're dead. It's a complete opposite. Again, we have the satanic side and we have the free side. We have, we have non-existence and existence. You see non-existence here. Eternal, eternity, eternal existence. Recognize who's saying, this is ancient, this lie is ancient, and yet it is predominant in our academic institutions, as you know, especially the elementary and the high schools, which is where it is beaten into our children and they lose all hope and they end up on fentanyl, I digress. 
you don't know this, that God wants you to be free and he has eternity waiting for you. Uh, you don't have that understanding of him. And you, you've actually taken this control, non-existence mess and moved it over into the God category. Then, of course, you will have hopelessness, which is exactly what the philosophy of evolutionary monism wants us to have, wants everyone to have. Because it's really easy to control people that don't know this. It's very difficult to control people that do know that. Somebody pointed out that the, it is okay for the, uh, the eugenics business to operate. It is okay for uh, the, uh, the alcohol industry to operate, but it is not okay for churches to meet. And I understand that. Listen, I, I don't want anybody to come to Cliffside that is uh, immune compromised. I am immune compromised. I have sympathy for, for what could happen to all of us. And uh, I'm going to do everything I can to keep that from occurring. But uh, I propose that the corruption of this every of according to its kind, everything according to its kind, the manipulation, that is the days of Noah. Matthew twenty four, thirty eight, Luke seventeen, twenty six. As for the days of Lot, Luke seventeen, twenty nine through thirty two. It's my most humble of all humbleness humbleness, humblest opinion that the exceeding wickedness of Sodom has something to do with the old men. So, here's Noah. Here's Lot. The old men, I think you will find with just a little bit of research, are the sons of Belial. And so, which I hope you all recognize... Judges 19.22. The old men, Genesis 19.4, are the sons of Belial. Judges 19.22. And you'll see the relationship. And it makes it obvious in my view. In other words, the sons of Belial are the old men of Sodom. Okay, I can't say that enough. And the wicked ones of Judges 19.22 and Judges 20.13, those who committed the abominations before the Lord... And therefore he took them away as he saw fit, Ezekiel 16.49. And I should say this, Ezekiel 16.49 describes Sodom as having defeated a great deal of the Genesis 3.17.19 curse. The old men are the sons of Belial. And then the obvious question is, how old are they? How old is old in theirs? What's the pre-flood old? What would be pre-flood old? It would be excess of 900 years. How old are these old men? That God must come and take them away as he saw fit because they were so abominable. They were the same as the sons of Belial. The sons of Belial are the sons of Belial in both places. Judges 19 and and, uh, Genesis 19 and 20. Anyway, what does that have to do with hypercytokinemia? Let me say it again. Hypercytokinemia. That's a question that absolutely no one ever has asked. No one has ever, in my lengthy experience, no one has put the sons of Belial, which is the sign of Lot or the days of Lot, and each according to its kind being manipulated, Genesis 6, and that would be Noah, the days of Noah. No one puts hypercytokinemia together with that until now. And hypercytokinemia, kinemia, I have to get the N in there, refers to an autoimmune response. It's also called the cytokine storm. You should look it up. I could write it on the board for you, I guess. Hypercytokemia. Again, it's an autoimmune response. You've heard of the coronavirus. How could you not? Okay, I can get rid of this.
COVID-19, Corona, VI, virus, D, disease. I can't spell disease. It's not as easy as it looks there at home. 19, of course, is 19. I get paid a lot of money for stuff like this. This is incredible. Big money. Big money. I need big money because I've got a suburban. What year is our suburban? 2005? It's got a million miles on it now. One good tire. Smells like dogs. You love it, though, don't you? No. No. (laughs) You might have heard of the cytokine storm and convection in connection with the COVID-19, the Wuhan virus. COVID-19 has been enigmatic and that it's likely that most who become infected with the virus have mild symptoms. And the asymptomatic, if you will, are the very mild symptoms. And again, many are have no symptoms. Uh, for a while, at least. Uh, some as much as 21 days. So they're highly infectious, contagious. But again, they're asymptomatic. They don't know it. So we have that group, and that seems to be the predominant group. Overwhelming mathematically, that is what has occurred to the population. But COVID-19 is fatal to others, and so the question has gone into the immunology realm. Why is it happening? What is causing COVID-19 to be so deadly to some, but most not? And again, the comorbidity issue, the the immune compromised, clearly there. But they've noticed a few things. For those whom the disease is fatal, they suffer horrific respiratory and cardiac failure. And which is why you're highly trained. I put my glasses back on because I look better if more of my face is covered. That's why your highly trained religious professional with a congenital progressive cardiac condition is especially at risk. And I'm necessarily cautious I worry that uh, people, I look better with a mask on. I mean, there's just no doubt about that. A mask and a hat and a big coat, I look much, much better. I look fantastic. It's the only way I can keep from scaring the horses and the children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But apparently this uh, COVID-19 influenza causes in the sickest patient, uh, patient, the sickest patients, this or psychokine storm, hypopsychemia, where the immune system proteins, the psychokines, cytokines, I can't say these things, they attack the body's own cells and tissue instead of the virus. So it is essentially, it's an immune response that's gone awry. Because um, when the pathogen enters a cell, and the pathogen would be the COVID-19 virus, when the pathogen enters the cell and begins to replicate, the cytokine protein that is in that cell initiates a cell death response in the people for whom this disease is horrifyingly fatal, a mortality condition. And that, that's, that cytokine protein, what it's doing, it's killing the cell as it's part of the immune system, right? It's a protective measure because it wants to prevent the pathogen from advancing to other cells. So it kills the cell that it's in. And doctors have noticed that the most critical of patterns uh, in this particular issue, cytokine storm, that in the, the ones that are the most devastated by it have blood that is teeming when they do the autopsies or even when they're alive, they can find the blood is filled with cytokine proteins those are immune system proteins, and it is the singular character. Uh, boy, tough day. It is a signature catastrophic characteristic. I can't say what I write, so I have to say what I didn't write. This characteristic is in the fatality cases overwhelmingly, and the tissue most affected by uh, 
the cytokine storm, the hypercytokemia, is respiratory. In other words, it's the lung tissue that gets affected by these cytokines starting to kill off cells that they don't need to kill off. So lung tissue is affected, and as the lung tissue is damaged and degraded, it becomes filled with fluid, which you would recognize as pneumonia. Fluid in the lungs results in low oxygenated of, oxygenation of blood, and the blood vessels are bleeding, and the blood then clots, and the blood pressure plummets, and all that leads to acute respiratory uh, syndrome. Cardiac failure, organ failure, that's what's happening to people. That's why this is so serious. And needless to say, the immunologists are rushing to solve hypercytokemia. And that means a tremendous amount of resources are being diverted into research. And any time the immune system sees advancement, I want to think about old men. We have not seen this kind of energy and effort poured into the immune system before. And the urgency is obvious. They're trying to save people's lives. But anytime the immune system has gotten this kind of support, I all again, where does it lead? What comes next? Recently, we had a discussion on the religious, economic, and biological aspects of the impending mark of the beast. I don't have room to write that on. The mark of the beast has three characteristics. It's religious. You will worship the beast willingly and knowingly. You will know that he is not Christ and you will worship him anyway and you will take the, the mark because he promises you uh, economic and biological benefits. And people will take it. I want to know how old will old be. So will a 75 to 100-year-old man, okay, let's move it down to 67. They may cancel Cinco de Stevo. You're aware of that? I know. I know Internet is just in. Um, if anything could go bad, this is, this is. How do we get through not having Cinco de Stevo? I, I just don't know. But again, can a 67-year-old man with the mark of the beast return to vitality? Does he have the ability to reverse aging? I think he does. Because I think that's the old men of the, that's the sons of Belial. The old men of Sodom. The sign of the days of Lot. That's, I believe I can defend that. I know people do not think so. They think I'm, uh, what's the word I want? Unthoughtful. I've heard a lot of commentators in the last couple of weeks already say that only science can save us. It's common. That's a theological statement, though they don't mean it as such, but it is very theological. But somebody is going to mean it as such, and the world will worship the counterfeit, the lie, the evil, and choose death. They will choose the mark, because the promise is, is that you will have life, but you will not have life. You, you can defeat aging, of course. Uh, it's been done before. You can have long, lived, uh, long uh, lifespans. It's been done before. It's all antediluvian. But you cannot stop death from outside force. Again, that's our discussion on thermonuclear capability. And someone, as I said, will come and he will... Um, tell you that the countership, I'm sorry, the counterfeit, the lie, the evil, is what you want. And you and people, many, the world will worship the beast and take the mark. However, as we know, there is someone, the other side, the Christ side, who can and willingly, who wishes that none should perish, perish and he will save us. And you know who he is, that is Christ himself. And he told us, those who have wisdom, to watch for the days of Noah and the days of Lot. Watch for them. And there will arise from the abyss at some point, Revelation 13, someone who will lie about being able to save men, but who cannot save anyone and has never any intention of saving anyone. And so that's why it's a lie. So there we go. 
now I can start the lecture. Which is 2 Kings 5. So we'll get rid of all of that. Remember the plan is for the highly trained religious professional to put all of this in a nice little bow. That has never happened in my 25 years. Maybe today is the day. This is where we left off, and hopefully you're now pretty much familiar with 2 Kings 5. This is Naaman the Syrian, Elijah the prophet, and the curing of an incurable, deadly disease. I know that uh, what you're thinking, how does he tie it all together? He's amazing. Not really. This is the third installment of a three-part series on 2 Kings 5. So this is number three. And there's going to be a number four. Last week was number two. That was lecture number 99. But the first was 2009, according to Dave, if he exists. If he exists, he might have called me today and said, uh, you said something in 2009 about the position that I'm going to put out here today. And all I said back then was that, it, oh, that's a very interesting idea. I, it was a very interesting idea. I hope you find it equally interesting. But I didn't delve into it because I always intended to go back and I never went back. I've done that lots. Well, we're going back finally. Because people mocked me on the Internet. Not really. Okay, Je uh, Jennifer did. Uh, and so I'm going to go ahead and be bludgeoned, cudgeled into doing this. The second Joel Daniel Revelation Ecclesiastes lecture number 99. So was the second lecture number 99. This is lecture number 100. So you can go back one week. This was uh, number one. So they're out of order as per Matthew 24. I see your hands up. I'm on page 10. I've only got to go to page 91. Actually, that's not true. I'll go fast. Again, this is the third installment of a third of a three-part series, and there will be a fourth because I know that already. I have read ahead, and I wrote it, and I know I didn't finish. I said in Lecture 99, 2 Kings 5 is filled to overflowing with typological attachments. It's incredible. I don't even know how to begin to describe it. I'm not going to do it justice. You'll find many more things than I'm going to give you. Um, so that's. I hope you have the excitement for it that I have had my entire life, or not entire life, but it's certainly my adult life. 2 Kings 5, 2 Kings 6, wow! 2 Kings 5 is an actual, literal, true event that happened exactly as it is recounted. These were people that lived. This is what they said. This is what they did. But God has hidden his truths within it. And I hope that that is obvious by the time I'm done. So we should search that which testifies of Jesus Christ, the scriptures. When he said that, there wasn't any New Testament. So don't, don't search the New Testament for him. You search the Old Testament for him. That's what he's saying. And then you find him in the New Testament when you have the knowledge of where he is at in the Old Testament. That's how the process works. People look for him in the New Testament without knowing the Old Testament. And that makes them... What's that word again? Rhymes with stupid. I don't want to offend you. I really don't. But I'm not sorry either. Fake sorry. That's John 5.39. Search the, system, the scriptures. They testify of Christ. We left off last Sunday with the two mule loads of dirt. And I gave you all kinds of information, and I got one letter. Uh, there's some wonderfully smart people out there. Uh, Sherry from somewhere in Illinois. She nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. So I know that all of you can. Two mule loads of dirt. Dirt is spelled like that. That might be helpful. Naaman, the Syrian commander, wanted two mule loads of dirt spelled like that because Elisha refused payment for salvation. He wanted to pay Elisha, the prophet. 
but Elisha, the prophet. Refused to take payment. And so Nahaman said, well, can I have two loads of dirt? The prophet refused payment for salvation. That's the principle. Remember that Naaman was on the brink of death from an incurable disease. No one had survived this disease except this beloved mighty giant, a great and honorable man to whom the Lord had given victory. Luke 4, 27, 2 Kings 5, 1, 2 Kings 5, 3, 2 Kings 5, 13. But look at that Luke 4, 27. No one had ever been healed of this incurable, deadly incredibly debilitating, destructive disease, except Naaman the Syrian, until Christ came and then healed thousands of them. So, again, God gave victory to Naaman over the Israelites, and that tells you what kind of condition the Israelites were in, weren't they? He uses Naaman the same way he uses Nebuchadnezzar, the same way he dealt with the uh, sons of Belial in Judges 19. Obviously, something really bad is going on in Israel. And, and Elisha will not take, and, and hopefully you're reading along, uh, because I don't have time to read it. I'm down to nine minutes or so. Elisha will, will not profane the truth of salvation by grace alone, by accepting payment. And so there again, Noaman says, okay, if I can't pay for it, can I take two mule loads of D-U-S-T-E-A-R-T-H dirt? Or E-A-R-T-H dirt. I'm sorry, E-A-R-T-H dust. And I should interject here that Gehazi, the assistant, if you will, of, of uh, Elisha, he does pervert the truth. Of the freely given blood of Christ that washes away leprosy, sin, death. Gehazi uh, goes after Naaman, trying to get money out of him, and accepts payment. And then a Gehazi obviously is the pharisaical works-based lie. Again, we're back to this. Which one takes payment? Which one is free? The satanic one is over here. The godly one is here. You should always recognize what Satan says. This is a works-based, pay-for-it system that never works. This is, it must be free, take no payment system. And that's what you're seeing here. So, because Elisha won't pervert, he will not make, he will not commit apostasy and heresy. Naaman says, I want two mule loads. Two mule loads. Obvious question, why not three mule loads? How come one mule isn't enough? Got to have two. Oh, it's probably just an arbitrary piece of information that has no value at all whatsoever in all of Scripture. Or it's incredibly important and it solves a lot of problems for you. Let's see which one it is. So Gehazi comes and rushes after him to get payment. And that, of course, is the pharisaical works-based lie of Satan, Isaiah 45, 20 through 21. This cannot save you. Works will not save you. It cannot save you. It does not save you. It is a complete lie. But Gehazi wants the money. And Naaman gives Gehazi. How much does he give Gehazi? Look it up. He gives him two things. He gives him... He gives him two talents of silver. And how many bags do you suppose he gives him? And two bags. Oh, I doubt that has any bearing on anything. It's just what he happened to have. It's a complete coincidence. Two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments. By now, when God repeats something like this, it's because he's convinced that you didn't notice it the first time. So he just beat you with it. And then he handed it over with two servants. Two, two servants. Two, 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 two. His screaming. Obviously, 2 Kings 5.23 then 
where he gives the two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of garments, which he handed over to the two servants. Obviously, that refers back to the two mule loads and ultimately to the two birds of the ritual for cleansing healed lepers, because that is Leviticus 14. I heal the ritual for for the cleansing of a healed leper. So I have to have a healed leper first before I have this cleansing ritual. That ritual has two birds in it. Leviticus 14. That's what Christ did at Luke 4.27. He healed everybody. And all these, all these pharisaical priests had to do this ritual, which they had never done for generations because nobody had ever been healed of this until Christ came. Except Naaman the Syrian, the great, mighty, honorable man who was beloved. Obviously, it refers back. And if it gets to the two birds of Leviticus 14, I should probably put this up here. If it gets to the, the Leviticus 14, then it's going to go to Genesis 15, isn't it? Because I have two birds that are not divided in Genesis 15 with respect to Abraham. And then, of course, if I go to Genesis 15, then I'm going to go back to Genesis 3.22. And I'll go back to, uh, let me, I have to look to make sure I get it right. Genesis 2.17. I got the two birds here. I got two birds here. What do I have here? I also have two. Two what? Two trees. Absolutely right. The epilogue, if you will, of 2 Kings 5, the conclusion is probably, that's probably a better term, the conclusion or the... Uh, the it is, how do I describe this? This is the defining part of the story, is this conclusion. That's the refusal of payment, Romans 1.17, Romans 4, 3 through 5, Ephesians 1, 7, Hebrews 9.14, 9.22. There is no salvation without the blood of Christ. That's the refusal of payment. It has to be free. It's his blood. How much does it cost? I've said it thousands of times. You can't possibly work. You don't have the ability to work long enough to pay for something that is infinite. So I have that refusal of payment. And then I have the leprosy of Naaman, the incurable disease being transferred to the one who went and got money from Naaman, Gehazi. He went out white as snow, Gehazi is said of Gehazi. He went out white as snow. Judas went out, John 13, 30. Just trying to put those two together. Now I'm going to fire at will here. So don't expect continuity or chronology. Many propose that Naaman wanted the dirt because he intended to build an altar. And I presented this view. I have some sympathy for it. However, as you know, Moses built an altar. Don't have room to put him up here. Moses built an altar. And so I'm going to compare. If the altar view has any validity, I should find it in the Moses position. That's Exodus 20, 22 through 26. The law of the altar. The altar that Moses built had no steps. Why didn't it have steps? So that no one could get on top of it. Because no one can get on top of it. Because no one is acceptable to Christ. Our God. You can't work your way up there. And it said it had no steps that our nakedness might not be exposed or may not be exposed. And that and it was not to be made with tools, lest it be profane. That's the mosaic altar. And guess who else made an altar? That's absolutely right. Noah built an altar. Genesis 8:20. the altar of the soothing aroma. Aroma. And again, nakedness is there. Noah is, has this nakedness in with him. And that intertwines, of course, with the. Uh, Nakedness of the Mosaic altar. That's Genesis 9, 21 through 22, if you're looking for all of that material. The Noatic altar. And, of course, Adam built an altar. So I have the Adamic altar, the Noatic altar, and the Mosaic altar. Genesis 4, 3. And nakedness was specific to Adam, wasn't it? Genesis 2.25, 3.10. Christ was crucified naked. It's important that you know that. Naaman was washed seven times. 2 Kings 5.14. I think it's clear that he was naked. So this theme is there in all of these stories, which means they all fit together. So again, I have, I have... Some concern for the altar view. I, there's parts of it that I really 
uh, want to go to, but I'm not convinced that Naaman wanted the dirt for an altar. In fact, uh, maybe an altar is somehow involved here. Maybe he built an altar. It would make perfect sense. But I don't believe the dirt was used for the altar in the sense that it formed the structure of the altar. Obviously, there's great meaning in the three altars, and we won't cover it today. I have asked, and I did ask many times over the years, why this spot in the Jordan River? It starts in the city of Adam, Joshua 3.16, and it goes down to the Dead Sea, where only heat evaporates things. There's no way to get out of the Dead Sea, and there is a spot. And Naaman is in that spot, and I want to know why that spot. Naaman came out of the Jordan with the leprosy removed after 7,000 years or 7 days or 70 weeks. You pick whatever 7 you want to attach to it. The creation week, the feast days, the millennials, the 70 weeks of Daniel. you got work to do there. But he came out of the Jordan River with the leprosy not only removed, but he had the flesh of a little child. I look at my flesh a lot now because of what it looks like is not only disconcerting, but it is uh, horrifying. I have all kinds of problems now. Naaman came out with the flesh of a little child. So how, was, how old was he when he went in? What do you think? He's the supreme commander of the Syrian army. How old is he? Fifty? Forty-five, fifty, and he comes out with the skin of a little child. When he went, when he went into the water, did he have the flesh of a little child? No, but he did when he came out. He came out with this extraordinary flesh. What is the meaning of this new flesh? Perfect flesh. He's transformed. His flesh, his flesh is transformed. He's saved from a certain incurable death, and he has the flesh of a child, perfect flesh. How about his bones? Is his internal organs also? His heart, his lungs, his muscles, ligaments, venous system, neurological system, intestinal Gastrointestinal? How good a job did God do with this washing of Naaman? Just, oh, I'll just get rid of the leprosy. Won't even add the fingers or the toes or the ears or the nose. I'll just leave that all out. I'll just get rid of the leprosy. You'll be ugly. But, hey, it's best I can do today. It's a Thursday. Never buy a car on a Monday. It's made on a Monday. But to repeat... All that's interesting to me, and I hope it's interesting to you. I want to know about that spot. I have been assembling the case for Christ choosing this exact location for his immersion into the Jordan River, which, again, descends from Adam, Joshua 3.16. Oh, I should say this. Joshua 3.16 just starts you into 3.16s. Because you have Matthew 3.16, which is the baptism of Christ, isn't it? You have John 3.16. Everybody knows John 3.16, but they think that it is only the earth. And it's really the cosmology, the entire creation. There's First Timothy 3.16, which is the mystery of godliness. And, of course, there's Revelation 3.16. If you do not have the deity of Christ, he vomits you out. So you can do just those five 3.16s and have a lot of time going through them. But I'm confident that Christ chose this exact location when he was having John the Baptist immerse him. So he immerses himself in the same place where Naaman is immersed seven times. And just as Christ purposed to place himself over the skull of Goliath, that's Golgotha, the place of Goliath's skull. Golgotha is, is not correct. Golgotha is correct, and it means the place of Goliath's skull. Christ said, that's where my crucifixion will be. And I believe that's in Genesis 3.15. That is where the feet of Christ were directly over the skull of Goliath. And I think he did that intentionally, obviously, he's infinite. And I submit he went to the exact place that Naaman was washed, where the iron axe head and the um, cut-off branch of Second Kings 6, 6 were also put. The cut-off branch, Daniel 9, 26. 
but also where the memorial stones of Joshua 4, where the Jordan River was heaped up. The Jordan River was heaped up so they could go across. And he said, get memorial stones. And this is a memorial to Israel forever. That's the spot. So I have all of those things happening in the exact same place. And clearly I'm attempting to build a case all the way back to Genesis 2-7. Because I think that's the point. There are two such places in Genesis. Genesis 2.7 and Genesis 2.21 through 22. The dust of the earth from which the body of Adam was made and the breath of life that was breathed into Adam's body happened at a spot. Genesis 2.7. Eve uh, was builded. Adam is in a place of deep sleep or he's in a state of deep sleep and he's... And, the, and this is, there's a place where she was builded, and the word means to be built. And remember that the place where the woman was made, her, where her body was constructed, was in the garden. Not so for Adam. Adam's was outside the garden, uh, Genesis 3.8. Adam was created, the body of Adam was created, and the breath was breathed into him, the, the spirit, the consciousness the breath of the spirit of life God's existence was breathed into him eternal existence and then he was placed inside the garden and therefore Adam would know where he was made incredible intelligent being we have no idea his capability his memory but he would know where he was made and he would have returned there in my view when he was about to die and that's because of Genesis 3.19 What did God say to him? Specifically to him. It also generally applies to us. But to him, I believe it was specific. To dust you shall return. So, from dust you were made, here to dust you will return. So, obviously, I am saying this spot is where the body of Adam was made. And I, yes, I am saying that Adam laid down and died on that spot. And 930 years plus however long he was in the garden. Some say 70. Some say 100. Some say 103. Some say 103 and a half. You can figure it out on your own free time. Because you have freedom to do things like this. And so... Some insist that he was at the origin of the River Jordan, where the city of Adam is, that that's where he went. But I don't think so. That's Joshua 3.16 again. I present Genesis 3.19 for, for this spot. Joshua 3.16, in my view, fits better with Romans 5.12. We can have that fight later. Naaman took with him two mule loads of dust. So that makes me think, why did he take two mule loads? One mule load would be enough. So, who else died there? You can work that out on your own. I might bring it up next week. Now, Amon came wanting hand-waving. He said, just wave your hand over me. I don't want to go wash in this river. i got better rivers than this. And the people that loved him said, listen, go wash in the river like this prophet said what's the problem he wanted to, he wanted to hand wave me God doesn't need to wave his hand does he he needs to think everybody that goes they're idiots and it is love to tell them so they have no power they are completely faking it they've always been faking it they'll continue to fake it because it's worth money to them uh oh Gazi, selling salvation, the temple that Christ cleaned out is not a good plan. He, Naaman came with hand waving and he left with dust, Ecclesiastes 12.6. Naaman then is, the, is in this position, this Genesis 2.7 position. If I'm right, duh. He's in this Genesis 2-7 position of being the first Adam. That's who he's representing here. Elijah, therefore, is in the role. He is in the type of, of the prophet. 
There is the prophet, Deuteronomy 18.15, and then there are other prophets. And Elisha is portraying the prophet. And so the prophet is the second Adam, the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15.45-54. through 54. We read that recently. He is, Christ is the God-man. He is the life-giver. He is the breath of life. He's the one that breathes. It's a triunity. All are involved. Three persons, distinct, but one. Naaman, the beloved, the blessed, the honored, the mighty, resurrected one now. He's resurrected and he's restored. And Elisha would take no payment. So Naaman took the dust from which a man's body was made. But then he took other dust. And Elisha, and he knew what he was doing. He absolutely knew why he would want two bags. That's all you have to figure out. That's next week's lecture. That's why we have a fourth. I'm going to spend the whole time on that. Elisha does something, though. He allows the dust to be taken. Now, I've given away why he did. But that's, that's the question that you have to answer. Why did Elisha say, take, you, have, you should take it? He gave it to him. So work that out and work out the meaning of it. Why did Nahaman want it? What did Nahaman think it was? Why did Elisha let him have it? And with that, will the musician come forward? Not mortician, I said musician.